We are this morning going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. For those in the friendship class, in the faith builders class, we've just been going for the last several years through the book of Hebrews. That One of the reasons why I tend to preach on Hebrews is because I've been studying Hebrews and teaching this through in our Sunday school class. And we find ourselves in our class in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're specifically at verse 7. And we began this material last week with some context, but Hebrews chapter 11 is a is something like a hall of fame. It's a listing and a catalog of men and women of faith, and it's not just a listing for the sake of information. It's a listing so that we will emulate their faith. The book was written to people who were enduring hardship. Some of them had been persecuted. Some of them had lost their families. Some of them were facing great pressure to abandon Christ. And the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11 is to show the believers that there is a great cloud of witnesses who they can follow. In fact, the the entirety of chapter 11 is building up to the exhortation in chapter 12 at the very beginning of the verse that says, therefore. In other words, because of this great catalog of faith, because of all these men and women who have gone before you, therefore... Since we have a so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the reason we're studying chapter 11, is because in chapter 12 we're going to be told, remember those people, do that. What they did, you can do. And the encouragement is not that in Hebrews chapter 11 these people are so extraordinary and so unusual that they're just isolated instances in human history. The point is, their faith is the same faith that we have. The faith we have is the same as them, so therefore we can do what they did. Not necessarily in recreating the historical context, but in terms of persevering in the faith no matter what hardships, no matter what obstacles, no matter what would try and pull us away from Christ, we can fix our eyes on Him in part because of all the people who have gone before us that show that it is possible. And the example of faith that we're covering this morning is contained in one verse, Hebrews 11, verse 7, chapter 11, verse 7, and it's the life of Noah. Just follow along as I read this verse. It says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So as he's Laying out things, Noah is the third person that he mentions in this chapter. The first example of faith was actually our belief in creation. Then the second was Abel. The third was Enoch. And the fourth example of faith is Noah. And the contents of verse 7 spring from also what happened in verse 6. Because Enoch's life was an example, and verse 6 stated an overarching truth for all time for people. If you want to know how to have a right relationship with God, it says this in verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him, meaning God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, there's no way to have a right relationship with God. There's no way to be pleasing to God apart from having faith. And so Noah is just another example of someone who had faith. And the text, as I was introducing it last week, providing a lot of context, 
is based in part on truths taught in Genesis. And we're going to go there in a moment. Last week, we spent a lot of time in Genesis chapter 5. I think we even referenced Genesis 6. And if you missed that, we now have a link on the Lakeside website. The Sunday school teachings are being recorded. But if you missed last week's context and you want to hear it, what I talked about, there's a resources link on the top right of our website. Click under that. It says Faith Builders Teaching. Click that, and you see the, the listings. So I'm not going to try and reteach all of last week, but I am going to give a little bit of overview of what we were talking about so we can come into this with a fresh and, and appropriate perspective. Genesis chapter 5 gives the biblical account of where Noah came from. It's a catalog of human history, the population of the earth. This person came and they lived and they had sons and daughters, and this person came and lived and had sons and daughters. And as human history is playing out, we see the account of a man named Noah. Noah's father was Lamech. Lamech was the son of Enoch. Excuse me, he was the great-grandson of... And let's go back to Hebrews chapter 5. This is what I do. I summarize my notes. Genesis chapter 5. I summarize my notes, and I don't have all my notes from last week. And then as soon as I do that, I've either misstated it or I've misread it. Oh, Methuselah. That's who I left out. So we have Enoch... Enoch had Methuselah, Methuselah had Lamech, Lamech had Noah. So Noah was the great-grandson of Enoch. Now, we've already covered Enoch. Enoch was a man of great faith, such great faith that after 300 years of walking with God, he didn't die, God took him directly to heaven. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, because God took him. So Enoch was a godly, godly, godly man, one of those pillars of godliness, inevitably, his children would have talked about it. It would be kind of hard. Your dad disappears one day that you not talk about it. But as you look through human history, what you see is that the great-grandson of Enoch was Noah. So in all likelihood, I did a little bit of charting out ages. Enoch was already in heaven when Noah was born. But Noah's dad was 113 year old, years old when Enoch went to heaven. So Noah would have known about his great-grandfather. And in all likelihood, he would have known about his great-grandfather's faith and his great-grandfather's God. So Noah would have had a family legacy of godliness. At the very least, he would have heard about it because of the descent of his family. And Noah's dad, Lamech, had very high expectations for his son. In Genesis 5.29, we see this, which is what occurred when Noah was named. Now he, and he's talking about Lamech here, Noah's dad. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And what I developed a little bit more fully last week is that this tells us a couple things. Number one, people had some revelation from God. If you look at the account in Genesis where God pronounce the curse in Genesis chapter 3, the words of Lamech, as he was naming his son, are very similar to what God had already said. So Lamech knew that they lived on the earth under a curse, and they knew the curse came from God. So even though the Bible wasn't written down at this time, the people that were living had some revelation from God. They knew God had spoken. They knew God had cursed the earth. And in fact, Lamech was even praying, maybe my son will be an instrument to bring relief from that curse. The people knew the curse was real. They knew the curse was from God. And they at least entertained the idea that maybe there could be some relief 
from the burden of the curse. Now, Genesis doesn't give us the numbers of people at any given time, but during this count, what you see is people were living a long time. Methuselah, over 900 years. Other people, over 700 years. On and on. And over these hundreds of years, normally what the Bible account says is so-and-so, for example, Methuselah had Lamech, and then it says he had other sons and daughters. In other words, over these hundreds of years, the earth was being rapidly populated by this, what started as a small group of people. My point of that when I developed it last week was this. Noah had a godly heritage. Noah had an awareness of God's revelation. Even his father would have likely passed it down. Noah had an awareness of something such as faith that his great-grandfather Enoch had, but so did every other person on the earth. They were all related. Noah had a lot of brothers and sisters. He had a lot of cousins, a lot of aunts and uncles. A potluck for that family would have taken up the whole earth. I mean, he had been eaten for a long time. But here was the point. They had a very different reaction to that godly heritage and the revelation of God that they had than Noah did. Noah added to the population of the earth. It says when he was 500 years old, he had three sons that are emphasized, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But listen to what the earth sounded like in Genesis chapter 6. In fact, if you want to turn over to Genesis chapter 6, you can. I'm going to read a couple of verses, and then I'm going to point you to some other things in Genesis chapter 7 this morning. But this is what Noah's family was like. We all have quirks in our family. We all can point to somebody in our family that's unusual. Sometimes it's a sibling. Sometimes it's parents. Sometimes it's aunts, uncles, cousins. Here's Noah's family. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A little bit farther down in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, it said this, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Noah's family was a disaster. Brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, great-grandparents, you just fit through all the categories, all the great aunts, uncles, great cousins, nieces, nephews, on and on and on were so horrible that God's solution was, I'm going to kill them all. Every one of them. These people had the same lineage as Noah. They would have had access to the same amount of revelation in all likelihood that Noah had, because we haven't gotten to the point where Noah started talking to God directly. They knew righteousness by example. They had some family members who had tried to follow God, at the very least Enoch, and yet they were wicked rebels to the core Violent against each other, violent with one another. And in the midst of this cesspool of evil and corruption and wickedness, one person stood out. In verse 8 it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Even though Noah lived in a uniquely evil and wicked time, he was able to maintain fellowship with God. As bad as you think America is, as bad as you think the world is, there are a lot of believers that you can fellowship and commiserate with. 
Noah was an island. And the people closest to him, brothers, sisters, all of that, were corrupt and evil and wicked and violent. We don't really know the testimony of Noah's wife and kids. We know they were spared, his sons and his son's daughters. But it had to be lonely to be Noah. You're trying to follow the Lord. You're trying to obey. And everybody around you despises God. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this. He points us to Noah. So I'm going to read verse 7 of Hebrews 11 again. Hold your place in Genesis because I'm going to go back there. But in Hebrews 11 verse 7 it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. There's a lot in this verse, in this small amount. There's a lot of biblical history that's summarized in one verse, but it's all predicated on that same concept, by faith. As you go through this chapter, you see by faith, by faith, by faith. It's the sounding board of everything. It's by faith. The reason Noah could be called a righteous man, he wasn't perfect, but he had a heart to obey the Lord. The reason that was the case was because he had faith. As verse 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's why this emphasis over and over, by faith, by faith. And Noah's example shows another element of faith. It doesn't change faith. Faith is defined very clearly at the beginning of the chapter. But what we see in Noah's life is faith in action. Verse 7 says, by faith, being warned by God about things not yet seen. God warned Noah of something. God gave a specific revelation to Noah of what was about to occur. And what are these things not yet seen? It was God's wrath that was about to be poured out. Again, holding your place in Hebrews, back in Genesis chapter 6. We've already read chapter 6 verse 5 that every thought of man was evil. Only evil continually. Verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry I have made them. Now, I can't get into the theology of explaining all of that. The point is this. God pronounced, I'm going to destroy everything. Now, we don't know that that was actually directed at Noah, but we do know in verse 11, it begins a dialogue where God did speak to Noah directly. Verse 12, actually, I'll start there. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Verse 13, then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy the earth. Verse 17, behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. So when it says that Noah in verse Hebrews 11 chapter 7 that Noah was warned by God about things not yet seen, that's it. God was saying, my wrath is coming. I'm going to destroy everything because of this wickedness. Think about that. That would have to be a terrifying thing to hear if you're Noah. Encouraging that you're going to live. This is your family. They're all going to die. Everybody. 
Everybody you see, you might have compassion on, you might care about, you might love, you might want the best for them. God is telling you, I am pronouncing judgment on their wickedness. I'm going to destroy everything. Now, God was giving Noah some specific ways to deal with things. He was going to tell him about constructing the ark and all those types of things. In fact, go back up and I skipped over the verse because I was emphasizing something else. But in Genesis chapter 6 verse 14, he says, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. And then he goes on about the rooms and the pitch. And later he's going to give much more details about the animals that you're going to bring on here. But he says, you're going to make an ark. You're going to make it this way. You're going to do this. And this is how you're going to survive. So from Noah's perspective, when he's being told all these things, there was a lot that he couldn't see. In fact, this imagery is very similar to the language that defines faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You don't have to turn back over there, but just listen to what the definition of faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I don't think it's accidental that the writer of Hebrews emphasizes that Noah was told by God, warned by God about things that Noah couldn't see. God said, you act, and if, as it were, if there were a dialogue of why, well, I'm going to do all these things. Noah couldn't see it. You could almost imagine. Humanity had never been completely destroyed before off the face of the earth. That would be a thing not seen. As far as we know, a giant, triple-deck, massive ship had never been built. For all we know, Noah would say, ark, what's a boat? I don't even know what that is. A thing not seen. The earth had always had seas and rivers. From the beginning of creation, there were seas and, and that type of thing. But there's no record of there ever having been rain or a flood. Noah was told some incredible things by God that he couldn't verify. There was no way for Noah to verify this was true. Here's the point. By faith, you can believe it anyway because God speaks. And God promised some specific things to Noah. Again, back in Genesis chapter 6. We see at verse 18, God made this promise to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So Noah had hope and his family, his immediate family, his three sons and their wives and Noah's wife had hope, but everybody else was going to die. Again, Brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, cousins, aunts, uncles, on and on you could go. They were all going to die. This was horrifying and powerful and unprecedented. And there was no frame of reference for that Noah could hold this up to and say, Oh, I understand what's going on. But Noah believed God because he had faith. He could believe in things that he couldn't see because he knew God was real. He knew God was truthful. He knew God was faithful. So God said to Noah, judgment is coming. And God also said to Noah, here is how you can escape the judgment. Judgment is coming, but here's the escape. And Hebrews 11.7 summarizes Noah's response to this warning. In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. In reverence is just sort of a holy fear, a holy awe. 
In other words, as soon as God spoke, he realized, Noah did, that he was undertaking a holy task. Now again, if you were to read Genesis 6, 8, before God ever said all this, Noah was already a man of faith. Noah didn't get scared into the kingdom. Noah already had faith. He was already someone who pleased God before this time. He had already found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and we know from Hebrews eleven six, without faith it's impossible to please God. So Noah already had faith. This isn't a situation where God just scared him into the kingdom. But Noah's faith took action. As soon as he was warned by God, as soon as Noah had revelation from God that said judgment is coming, here's how you escape the judgment, Noah acted and he prepared the ark for the salvation of his household. In other words, he knew God had promised him that there were going to be eight people on that ark. Noah acted. Because of his faith, Noah, as far as we know, there's no indication of a dialogue with God. Well, hold on a second, God. Is this really necessary? If you really got to kill everybody, come on, just back off a little bit. Is this really going to float? I've never built a boat. Or is this going to work? I don't understand rain, what flood. What are you talking about? How is that going to happen? None of that. Scripture says... That Noah was warned by God, he reverently and in awe took action and obeyed God. Noah knew this, everybody was going to be judged and God was providing his family a way of escape. And Genesis 6 verse 22 summarizes the same thing a little bit differently. It says this, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. By that reverent awe, Noah was motivated to do what God called him to do. He obeyed it diligently. And according to Hebrews verse, chapter 11, verse 7, it's interesting. All of Noah's actions said something to the world. It says this, by which he condemned the world. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen and reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world. Which particular aspect by Noah condemned the world is something that scholars spend a lot of time talking about, but the nuances of it really are not relevant because it misses the overarching point of the text. Noah, by acting in faith, by believing in God and obeying him, shamed a disbelieving world. Unbelievers knew that at some level they were rebelling against God and Noah was a thorn in their side. No doubt heaping guilt on them. In the midst of utter depravity, of sinfulness run amok, of violence, of wickedness of every type, Noah was faithful. He kept plodding along, walking with God. And this heaped condemnation on everyone who saw it. Now we're going to have to look at a couple of additional scriptures But we know from other scriptures, some of which I'm going to point you to and we're going to look to, Noah didn't just build the ark in silence. As best as we can piece together biblical history from the various contexts, Noah told other people what he was doing. Now, if you're like me and most of your Bible knowledge, I was saved as an adult, most of my Bible knowledge consisted of stories like Noah. You picture a guy out in the wilderness building a little boat and he's talking to people, be nice to one another, that's... Not exactly it. But we know that Noah told people about Christ. 
We know that Noah told people that there was a judgment that was coming. And I'll explain to you in just a moment how we know that. But here's when it occurred in all likelihood. God warned Noah, build an ark. Noah started building. And that building took a long time. This was a big boat. There weren't shipyards. There weren't lumber yards. Noah had three sons. I hope they were strong. In fact, I hope he had strong daughter-in-laws because they had a lot to do. And so Noah got started. And we aren't given any of the details of how long it took. But in all likelihood, this took many decades. Now, you'll read at different times. Some people think they have very precise measurements. There's a reference in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, to the Lord not allowing his spirit to strive with men for beyond 120 years. And some people think, aha, that's how long between the warning and the ark. Now, there may be some general timelines like that, The problem is, we know for a fact that Noah got on the ark when he was 600 years old. In fact, it's repeated twice in Scripture. Genesis 7, 6 says, Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Genesis 7, 11 says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on and on, he entered the ark. And when God was giving Noah a warning in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, it seems to imply that Noah already had sons and daughter-in-laws. God said, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now, we can't be precise about any of this, but according to what it looks like in Scripture, it looked like Noah had sons around 500 years old. If he got on the ark at 600 years old, it probably didn't take 120 years to build the ark. But really, none of those kind of nuances. I only mention it. You may have run across those things. They they aren't the point. The point is, it took a long time. And during that time that it took, while the ark was under construction, it was an act of mercy by God. It was an act of mercy by God that he didn't just immediately destroy anyone. Obviously, God could have supernaturally just picked Noah and his family up, flooded the earth, put them back down. Turn, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 3. Our cross-references this morning can cause some questions, but I'm going to try and zero you in on what I think is the most relevant part of this. You're kind of running out of fingers for me to say, keep your place here, keep your place here, and then turn over here, but... We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3 because it says something about what was going on while the ark was being constructed. Now Peter was talking about Christ, begin at verse 18, 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedience. And I've emphasized this. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. In other words, God was being patient with humanity while Noah was building the ark. That was an act of mercy. Now turn over to Second Peter chapter 2. Just keep, keep flipping the pages. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, 
says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, verse 5, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Here's my point of trying to pull these various pieces together. God was patient, and while the ark was being constructed, it was an act of mercy. And it seems clearly by implication that during this time, Noah was preaching to the people. Pleading with them, God's going to judge you. I can't imagine the sense of urgency that Noah must have felt. These were his family. These were all the people that he knew. And by all of this, Noah preaching righteousness to them, it could have been decades of preaching to them, God was showing mercy and withholding his judgment. And yet in spite of all of this, here was the reaction to everyone to Noah's preaching. They ignored him. Paid no attention to him. I sometimes cringe when I hear people say, you can evaluate a pastor, you can evaluate his faithfulness. Look at the number of converts he has. Look at the number of baptisms. Look at the number of people that he has following him. Two words why that's not the measure of a pastor. Jeremiah and Noah. They were faithful men that preached the truth. They warned the people. And between the two of them, they don't have anything to show for it by our standards, by that measure. I'm just going to read this. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says something that gives us a picture of what was the world like while Noah was building the ark. God had given this warning. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God was being patient with mankind. What was the reaction of all of humanity during this time besides the wickedness and the evil that we know of? Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 37, Jesus says this. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Verse 38. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all the way. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. The people didn't listen to any of the preaching. They could care less. They didn't even understand what's going on. Life just went on as it always had. Life was just moving along, and then all of a sudden, hey, what's Noah doing? And he's in the ark, and it was too late. Because the hand of God that was restrained by patience and mercy unleashed a flood that destroyed everything. It says because of all this, it's because of Noah's faith, he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. We will see Noah in heaven. We are heirs of this same righteousness. Again, the whole point of this chapter is to let us know that Noah was not some exceptional superhuman being. The faith that we have is just as effective for being able to live in a lost and dying world as the faith of Noah. We're no less heirs of righteousness than Noah if we have faith. And as I was preparing these notes and I was writing it out and as I was thinking through the materials, I've gone through it, it's one of those times where the application is so obvious I couldn't even hardly believe it. I say the application is so obvious because in many ways we live in the same type of world Noah did. 
It's a lot more of us. Praise the Lord that we have a family of God. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. But guess what? We have been warned by God that there is a judgment that will come on sinners. And just like Noah, we have been told how to escape the judgment. is through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've been warned that judgment is coming. We've been told, here's how they escape the judgment. We need to be the preachers of righteousness to this generation. Not just Pastor Steve, not just me, not just other elders, not just Steve as a Sunday school teacher, not just people teaching, every one of us. If our lives are obedient, if we're walking in what God has called us to do, our lives will condemn this world. I don't have any desire to try and manipulate you or make you feel guilty because the Holy Spirit has to do the work of conviction, of moving you. But I've heard many Christians lament how horrible the world is. It's no worse than what Noah had. And we have a message of mercy that's a lot more understandable because Jesus has already come and walked on the earth. You figure Noah's pointing forward. He's looking forward to the cross. He doesn't really have a full concept of it. We know Jesus Christ came to the earth, lived a life as the God-man, walked on the earth, never sinned, and died, paying the price for sinners like us. One of the worst things a Christian can do is not live under the shadow of God's judgment. What do I mean by that? I don't mean that we should feel guilt and condemnation because there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not what I mean. What I mean is we should feel the sense of impending doom for those people that we know that are lost and don't know Christ that Noah felt for everybody that were about to be drowned. We live in a time where First Peter 4... 4 says in all this talking about all this sin they meaning unbelievers are surprised that you do not run with them into the excesses of dissipation and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead God will judge and we live in a day that mirrors what was in Acts chapter 17 verses 30 and 31 just write it down Acts chapter 17 verses 30 31 it says, therefore, having looked, overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. We have the privilege of telling people how to escape a coming judgment. We don't know the exact date that God will judge. We just shared a prayer request in our group about someone, an unbeliever, as far as we know, who had lapsed into a coma. That person will meet the judge very quickly, potentially. Every day you look on the news, people are dying. They're going to meet the judge. So the message that we have and the encouragement that we have is because we have faith, we can live like Noah. In a generation that is wallowing in the mud, we don't have to. We have the ability, because of our faith, to walk obediently, to live lives of righteousness, to be a testimony to the world that there is another way. In fact, we have a testimony to the world that is the only way to escape the wrath of God. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So let me encourage you. 
First of all, if you don't know that message, you need to come to faith. Today is the day to repent and believe. Don't trifle with God. We've had enough examples in our church family of people dying unexpectedly to know our days are sovereignly in the hands of God. We don't control those factors. And let me encourage you, no matter the results, you have to proclaim this message to a lost and dying world, even if everybody you know ignores you. Even if they go about their lives living day to day as though your talking means nothing, you still proclaim the truth. Judgment is coming, but we can tell people the way of escape. Turn over again, though, to Second Peter. I'm going to close this with this verse. Second Peter chapter 2. Because Peter was recounting examples where God had judged humanity. Actually, he starts in verse 4 when God judged the fallen angels, the angels who rebelled. Second Peter 2, I'll begin at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment... Verse 5, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Verse 6, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who live ungodly lives thereafter. Verse 7, and if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Verse 8, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Please join me as we close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for each one of us here, that we be counted among the godly. Lord, it's great encouragement and great hope that even in the midst of the depravity that we see unfolding around us, not just around the world, but even in our own country, as we see sin not only tolerated, but promoted and glamorized and favored, Lord, in the midst of this, I thank you for the promise that you know how to rescue the godly from temptation. Lord, we don't have to be corrupted by our culture. Lord, because of our faith, because you've indwelled us by your spirit, we have the ability to walk even in this dark time. We have the ability to walk in the light. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. I pray that each one of us We'll have a renewed zeal, a renewed commitment to obedience, not for the sake of legalism, not for any personal accomplishment, but, Lord, as a testimony to a lost and dying world of righteousness. Lord, there's a judgment coming. We fall asleep to that fact. Lord, I know I lose sight of that fact. Life goes on and things happen, and day by day things just continue to happen and yet, Lord, your word makes it clear. One day it's going to come to the end, and that day it'll be too late for those who don't know you. So I pray that you will give us a sense of urgency. Lord, you haven't called us to build an ark, but you have called us to show love for you by our obedience. 
I pray that our lives would be lived in such a way that people in this dark and dying world would look at us and say there's something different. And Lord, you might use that to draw them to the source of our difference, which is Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for the rest of our worship time today that we would have a wonderful time with our church family and be encouraged and convicted. And ultimately, Lord, we would exalt you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.